In this episode, neurology resident Dave Ho interviews Dr. Tan Nguyen, an interventional neurology specialist. They talk on the topic of intracranial aneurysms, and this is part two of two. A reminder that the purpose of this podcast is for education and not for direct medical advice. We hope you enjoy. Hello to our podcast listeners. Today, we're going to be discussing intracranial aneurysms again with our own very special guest, Dr. Tan Nguyen. So this is the second part to a two-part series on the management of intracranial aneurysm. So Dr. Nguyen, thank you so much for meeting with us again. Um, we are uh, talking today about intracranial aneurysms, and we want to jump back in and discuss the management of patients who have already suffered a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, are there certain considerations you take to determine if aneurysm repair is an option? Hello, Dr. Ho. Thank you for having me back. This is an inpatient problem that presents often in the emergency room. And so the first thing we look at is the patient's medical stability. Look at their vitals, their airway, uh, their breathing, and do they need a breathing tube? Um, Once that's uh, overcome, then we look at the blood pressure. Are they in a range that's normal where we're happy about it? Or is their blood pressure too high, in which case we need to lower their blood pressure? The third element we look at is uh, the patient's neurological stability, meaning how good or how bad is their exam. And we look at their consciousness, meaning are they drowsy? Um, Are they in comatose or in stupor? Which would make us concerned that we need potentially to place a drain in their head to relieve the pressure in the head from the blood that has accumulated and so that their neurological function can be restored. So once all these elements and this checklist is in place, Then we look at the source of the bleed. Uh, We look at the anatomy based on the non-invasive imaging, uh, CT angiogram, or sometimes straight to angiography is another valid way to triage these patients uh, from the emergency room. And fortunately, in more than 90% of these patients, the anatomy is conducive or is amenable to non-invasive endovascular coiling. And uh, that's basically where we place a catheter through the groin or through the wrist. Uh, A catheter is a plastic tube up to the aneurysm, and then we place coils inside the aneurysm to secure the aneurysm. The alternative is if the aneurysm is not amenable to coiling, then it's often surgery where they make an incision across the head and place a clip across the aneurysm to secure the aneurysm. For patients who have equipoise, where both the interventionalist and the surgeon think that you can do either approach, There is data showing that the outcomes at one year tend to be better for patients who are coiled compared to those who are clipped. And that's why we preferentially use this strategy in triaging patients with ruptured aneurysm. So with regards to treating patients who have had a ruptured aneurysm, when would be the most appropriate time to consider an intervention? That's a great question, Dr. Ho. And uh, the first things we consider when we see these patients or when we hear about them is their medical stability. So the airway, the breathing, the circulation. And then the issue about the the drain is very important. We try to figure out, do they need that or do they not need that? And that comes before we secure the aneurysm. So we triage all of this before securing the aneurysm. And also we seek to do consent. So in general, we tend to treat our patients within six hours to as long as you know 24 hours from presentation. And so you do have that window because 
there is a potential risk of re-rupture, and that risk of re-rupture is approximately 4% of patients in the first 24 hours, and then approximately 30 to 50% in the ensuing weeks. So there is a, a time pressure to make sure that the patients are treated early. So in the neuro-IR clinic, when we see a patient who's had a treated aneurysm, what are we looking for, and uh, how are we monitoring patients post-intervention? Another great question, Dr. Ho. So if it's a patient who just came from a ruptured state, meaning after they've had their aneurysm secured, we think about the cognitive issues that can occur after a, a major subarachnoid hemorrhage or a major rupture. And so there could be a cognitive load on these patients, meaning they can have problems with concentration, memory, fatigue is very common. So we try to reassure these patients that this is cognitively and psychologically normal, and that we expect some time they will need for recovery. The other elements we look at are, again, the vascular risk factors. We ensure that their blood pressure is well controlled, um, that they're not smoking if they were previously smoking. And then we look at the aneurysm. We, we think about what kind of imaging do we need for the aneurysm, meaning do we need another follow-up image, which tends to be within six months after a ruptured aneurysm or 12 months after an unruptured aneurysm? And it could be either an MRI or an angiogram that we would recommend to a patient uh, once they're in our clinic. So oftentimes in neurology clinic, we are asked by our patients and patient family members whether or not they should be screened for uh, intracranial aneurysm either because they've had a close family member who recently suffered from an aneurysm, or if they had uh, an aneurysm in the past and they're worried about their family members in the future. What do we tell these patients and how do we advise them with how to proceed? That's a great question, Dr. Ho. The, um, the anxiety is certainly there because once you've had one, you always think about your family member. The good news is that family or genetic Hit, uh, risk in patients who have an aneurysm is very low. It's about on the order of 5%. And so it's not a common issue to have another family member with an aneurysm. But if there are two or more first-degree relatives that are known to have an aneurysm, then we do screen that the immediate first-degree family member gets screened as well. So in that setting, we do recommend screening. And then the question is, what if you only have one person? I mean, you're the index person. Then in that case, we have a discussion and say, you know, it's not part of the guidelines, but if there is an anxiety element, meaning it makes the family member anxious to know whether or not they have an aneurysm, then we discuss on the benefits and the disadvantages of screening. Do you want to know if you have an aneurysm or not? And my answer is usually that it's just a screen. So if you have a big aneurysm, it'd be good to know about it because then you could potentially prevent a life-threatening event. But if it's a small aneurysm, meaning a one or two millimeter outpouching, we may just recommend that the patient not worry about it nor live with this anxiety and that it would be something we would monitor as opposed to aggressively intervene on. So it does affect quality of life to know whether or not you have an aneurysm because you live with that anxiety for the rest of your life. But to know that you don't have a big aneurysm can be a, a source of relief. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Dr. Nguyen. Um, and thank you for to our listeners. This has been Neurology Clinical Pearls. We are available wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.